Song number 272. Please mark that as Brother Cale has made that announcement. And we'll use that a bit later in our service this evening. It is a blessing again to be able to come together, to assemble, even as we are at the moment. These songs have already been so encouraging and uplifting. The messages they've brought, the encouragement they've sent, the prayer that we just enjoyed together as Brother Wayne led us, the appreciation of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the encouragement, the faith, and love that are shared at a place like this. Would you please be turning to the book of Amos? The book of Amos in the Old Testament, the third of the Minor Prophets. And tonight, as we continue our study of the Minor Prophets, we come to that particular book, and for the full course of our time tonight, we'll lay a bit of an encouragement of, a foundation of, an emphasis on, and an application of this book of Amos. And as we do that, I trust that we each can be encouraged and we can be edified by that which was written so, so very long ago. This opening slide is basically just a very brief introduction. The Minor Prophets, I suppose, are some of the least in general known books in all the Bible, with the exception of the book of Jonah. Probably most of us know a lot about Jonah, but with the exception of that one, likely, on the whole, quite little is known about the other 11 in the Minor Prophets. And yet, they are some of the most exquisite, some of the most direct, some of the most encouraging, and quite frankly, some of the most remindful of the greatness of God in all the books of the Bible. They do form a rather critical part that not only closes the Old Testament in terms of the record of it, but they also, in many ways, are reflected upon by the New Testament writers. You may notice on that slide that we're going to give some emphasis tonight to this little book of Amos. Nine chapters, a grand total of 136 verses. As you give thought to that by itself, it doesn't take that long to read the entirety of the book of Amos, and so tonight, we'll not read it in its entirety, but I will direct you to several verses along the way. The first order business, to cast a spotlight on the man named Amos. It is true that we know relatively little about some of those prophets. We do know a bit more about Amos. If you would be turning to chapter 7, we're going to spend just a little bit of time there in a moment. But as I move you in that direction... We do learn in the opening chapter he was from the city of Tekoa. Now otherwise, we know quite a bit about where Tekoa was. It was a little village about six miles south of Bethlehem. That means that it was in the land area you and I would call Judah in the southern kingdom. You might take note of that in just a moment. Because in chapter 7 we learn something remarkable. Although he was from Judah, God commissioned him and in fact brought him to the reality of preaching to Israel. Take note, he was from Judah but preached to Israel. An interesting situation, wasn't it? You may notice as I pointed out in chapter 7, I'm going to invite your attention to verses 14 and following where Amos himself gives us a reflection of the nature of the person that he was and it's going to go like this. Then answered Amos, and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was an herdman, a gatherer of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Don't you find that stirring? Here was a man who was in fact a kind of farmer. He tended sycamore trees. He apparently also had a flock, 
And in that 14th verse, you notice, he said that he was a herdman. And yet God dipped forth in the nature of his being, called this man to the labor of a prophet, and commissioned him to go and preach to Israel. Did you notice also as a part of Amos's description, he said, My daddy wasn't a prophet. I didn't come from a family of known for prophecy. And furthermore, in addition to that, I never attended a prophetical school. As you'll notice on the slide, I ask you to appreciate with me that there are several references in the Old Testament to the schools of the prophets, such as those that were first established by Samuel and those that continued under the tutelage of Elisha and Elijah as well, and that other prophets themselves also attended. Amos said, I never attended the university for the prophecy. And yet, God saw in him the proper countenance and the nature of what would be in order to be an effective and powerful and dramatic prophet for the cause of the Lord. Isn't it true, as you close that slide with me, that we will thus immediately observe this. Amos, later on in the book, would say, God thundered, God roared, and I spoke. To this day, is that not still the prime preaching orders for those that would proclaim the gospel of Christ? We each admire education, and we are thankful for the opportunity for it. But may we say, a student of the Bible is what's needed. That person who can stand in a pulpit and make reference to the passages of the Word of God, you may not have a half dozen THDs or PhDs after your name. That's not required to be an effective preacher. In 1 Peter 4, verse 11, In the heart of the New Testament, do we there not read where the, the speaker, Peter, would say it like this as he spoke for God? The urgency and the character of this message, If any man preach, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4, 11. Otherwise, didn't Paul give those marching orders to Timothy and says, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. To borrow the wording of 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3. Otherwise, in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Speak thou the things which adorn or become sound doctrine. Isn't it true? as thankful as we are for the opportunity of the education that men may offer for you and for me. We are thankful for those who can preach to us the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3 verse 8, and do that in a way that brings us to plainly and clearly see what thus saith the Lord means. As you and I close that slide, you do find one other thing that's revealed to us in chapter number 7. This issue connected to the unprofessional history of Amos in one sense would come to be a bit of a challenge to him. May I call your attention to verse number 12 of Amos chapter 7. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But... Prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. So here was this messenger, this person named Amaziah, 
And you otherwise notice in verse number 10 who he was. It is there said that he was the priest of Bethel. Now you and I know from other sources and recognitions of the Word of God itself that Bethel was a place where great idolatry and great evil took place in regard to the worship of God. Here was a priest of that place. And he rather abundantly and rather directly said to Amos, Hush up. We don't want to hear any more of that preaching. You go home and eat bread, enjoy your life there, and preach somewhere else, but don't preach here. Sometimes there are those who aren't terribly excited about the Word of God. It perhaps encourages of them that which they have no interest in doing. Maybe they don't want to repent. Maybe they don't want to otherwise change something about their life. Amaziah was quite happy and content with the way things were. And thus, he told Amos, We don't want any more of that preaching. If you want to preach that way, you go somewhere else. Aren't we thankful for the purposeful and directness attached to the Word of God? With this history about the man known as Amos, let's now begin in chapter number 1 and make a few brief comments that occupy the first two chapters of this book. Amos chapters 1 and 2. As you read these opening two chapters, it isn't difficult and it doesn't take long before one realizes rather easily the message and the subject that occupies both of them. In fact, let me draw a few of the verses and just note a phrase in the verse, and that alone will be enough. Let me, though, precede that by this statement. The opening two chapters state the judgment of God upon various nations of the earth. But there's an interesting formula that's used to begin each one of these statements of God through Amos. Notice it with me starting in chapter 1. Amos chapter 1, verse number 3. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four. Verse number 6. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four. Verse number 9, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four. Chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. Chapter 2, verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. And finally, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four. Verse number six. Don't you find that an intriguing recipe? For three transgressions, and for four. For three transgressions, and for four. Now that particular recipe, or at least that means of wording it, pointed out rather clearly there were a number of sins of which these nations were guilty, and the God of heaven was aware of it, and he was not going to ignore them. But rather, he was going to visit judgment upon these particular nations because of the evil of which they were guilty. But to say it that way is to almost ask a completely separate question. And it's the one I've asked you to note on that slide. Did you notice the nations guilty of this? Those addressed by Amos, in order he pointed out Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, and Israel. 
The last two of that group, you and I know very well. Once the kingdom divided, once the kingdom split, you and I recall there was a southern kingdom of Judah, a northern kingdom of Israel, and these were God's people. They are included in the list. God's people aren't exempt either. You see, that still holds true today, doesn't it? God, in fact, will judge the church by virtue of our nature of standing before Him. If the parable of the tares teaches us anything in Matthew 13, that's exactly it. But doesn't this also remind you of another question? As you thus think about the other nations listed, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, and others, ponder this with me. They were never under the law of Moses. Not a one of them. The law of Moses was never given to them. Deuteronomy 5 highlights so strongly in verses 4 and following. It was the children of Abraham through Jacob that received that law. These Gentile nations never received it. It is for that reason one might take careful observation. So what is it that God judged them for? Not one time do you find in that listing that God was judging them for failing to keep the Sabbath. They were never under the Sabbath law. They couldn't break it or keep it. God never once stated that they were guilty of failing to bring the sacrifices to the tabernacle as appropriate. That was never commanded of them. Doesn't that then beg an interesting question? What did He judge them for? What were the Ammonites guilty of? What were the Edomites guilty of? As you read those two chapters, you readily find what I summarized at the bottom of that slide. The very thing of which these nations were guilty, and that for which God would punish them, was not their failure to keep the law of Moses. They couldn't do that. But what He judged them for was their inhumanity to other people. They didn't treat others the way they should. They fail to honor and appreciate the basic realm of humanity toward other people. That is what God's judged them for. They availed themselves of the poor. They challenged those that were needy, didn't take care of their needs. They ripped up women that were pregnant. They didn't treat them in a basic way the way they should have. The basic understanding of the value of life and that which goes with it. That was the failure of those nations. And one by one, God said, I'm going to bring a fire upon them and devour them. And from the perspective of history, it happened every one of them, just the way that God through Amos said that it would. Is that not another lesson for us as we give consideration to this? There is not a single human being that has ever walked the planet that has not been answerable to God. You on occasion will hear someone say, well, that person doesn't serve beneath any law of God. God will accept them the way that they are. That's a lie. Every person everywhere is subject to God. After all, you and I appreciate the Word of God teaches us, even as Jesus said, go into all the world and teach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Isn't it interesting then in light of some of those observations, there's a principle set forth that God expects, even of those who aren't Christians, 
He expects basic behavior like this. You treat others the way you want them to treat you. Matthew 7 verse 12. You love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 18. These nations had failed in that regard. And for that, they would reap the sore dividends of the judgment of Almighty God. Those opening two chapters, I've mentioned thus a bit of emphasis on the Gentile nations, but I did point out earlier two nations, namely Judah and Israel, are also included. God did judge them for their failure. Look at verse 4 of Amos chapter 2. For three transgressions of Judah, this is now God's people, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments. God said something different to Judah than He did to the others. Again, the Gentiles were never under the law of Moses, but Judah has failed to keep my commandments, and for that they shall be judged today. You and I have been so honorably blessed with the thought of the Word of God and just as those oracles of God are shown and presented to you and I and we've accepted them as in fact we're Christians. Oh, how keen it is to realize we should be judged on that great and notable day under the words of the Master in John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That word shall serve as our standard, and so it is. As we close the second chapter, it prepares us for the chapters that follow it. What else does God have to say through the prophet Amos? The next slide I've entitled, The Doom of Israel. I pointed out the opening two chapters highlight God's judgment upon the nations. And beginning in chapter 3 and continuing for a few chapters thereafter, there is a particular emphasis on the doom, the judgment that God shall rain upon His people because of their disobedience, because of their failure. Given that that occupies a significant part of the book, it would do us well to also at least give it some thought and a few of the lessons that are found in it. It all starts in the opening part of chapter number 3 where there is a faithful question asked in verse number 3. It may well be one of the most notable questions in all of the minor prophets. Can two walk together except they be agreed? God had just pointed out, Judah has not kept my commandments. Here's the problem. Judah doesn't want to walk with me because she doesn't want to do that which is my commandment. It is still true today that those who walk with the Lord agree with the Lord. Those who do not agree with Him will not walk with Him. And that's a vital question for each of us, isn't it? Are you and I walking daily with the Lord? If so, it's not because the Lord by some way forces us into that choosing. We are choosing not to walk with Him. That statement of chapter 3, verse number 3 then begins to note some of the descriptions in the verses that follow it. Verse number 4, Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? You and I realize the answer to these rhetorical questions. And yet God has roared. Note verse number 8, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? 
Amos says, though he himself was no prophet nor the son of a prophet, when God thundered, when God spoke, he had no choice. In fear, he had to respond to the thundering voice of God. Should our response be any different? God has thundered through His Word. He has given us the majestic and magnificent Word of truth. Should it not be our understanding to stand in awe of the Lord, to fear the nature of Him? Does that not remind us of Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. There is no higher purpose or calling, no otherwise pursuit that can occupy your time or mine than fearing God and keeping His commandments. In those chapters 3 and following, you might pause at this point to note somewhat about the historical setting of the book because that will at least offer some better understanding of a couple of the passages at least. The time of Amos was a rather interesting time of prosperity. The people were well off. Wealth and materialism were rampant. The enemies, you see, at that moment are such that they had to divert their attention to other nations that themselves were causing problems. Israel and Judah, by and large, were in a time of peace. You can only imagine how the people must have thought that Amos was crazy. You're telling us that God is going to destroy us and rain judgment upon us? We're living the good life, Amos. Haven't you ever looked around? Haven't you given any serious thought? Everything is fine. In less than 50 years, what Amos said came to pass. 50 years less. The judgment of God was poured upon them. And never again were they to appreciate that kind of ease and prosperity again. Maybe that's an interesting observation, isn't it? You'll notice about the middle of that slide. We are told in chapter number 4 as well as 8, there were some things of which God's people were guilty. May I call your attention to verse number 1 of chapter 4. Which oppress the poor which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. God's own people were taking advantage of the poor. They were afflicting the needy, all to advantage themselves. And God says, I won't have this. You'll notice over in chapter 8, the plot thickens. For there, these additional statements are made. Verse number 4 of Amos chapter 8 Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? They were given to dishonesty. You go to the place of business, and the person who was buying what you were there to sell would adjust the balances to benefit them so he didn't have to pay you much. But then underneath the counter, if you please, there was a different set of balances he'd pull out, and when he got ready to sell you something, those balances would be shifted in his favor again so that, again, he'd charge you a lot for what he was selling you. 
that was going on among God's people. They weren't acting fairly. They weren't acting equitably. They were again taking advantage of the needy and the poor. Did you note one other thing about their worship? Verse number 5. When will the new boon be gone? No, the prophetical books followed that law of Moses and the books that had long gone before it. But you and I remember in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, much had been said about the fact that on the Sabbath, there was to be no work done. Not only that, you and I recall there was to be also the understanding that that was to be a day that was hallowed. They weren't to conduct business as usual. What were they saying though in Amos's day? When will the new moon be gone? I need to open the shop. Can't the new moon be gone soon enough so I can get back to business? They had little regard for the estimation of the things of God. They were much too interested in business as usual. Look at what follows it. That we may sell corn. I need to do some business. And I need to take care of selling these things. When will this new moon finally be over so that we can get back to transacting ordinary business? Look at what follows it. And the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat. Remember, on the Sabbath day, they weren't able to conduct those business. There was to be no work. So they had to wait to the day after Sabbath, supposedly for the next transaction of business, the selling of wheat and otherwise. They weren't too interested in church services, if I may say it that way. When's this Sabbath going to be over? May I say that's a severe warning to any of us who treat Sunday just like any other day, who think that in that day is just a day like the other six of the week. God commanded us in the New Testament to revere, to honor and adore that day, and to appreciate in it something unique and special. And the way we treat that day will go a long way toward making a public statement to one and all of how much we regard God and what He's done for us. How much do we love the Lord? That'll be shown by and large, among other things, by how faithful I am to the attendance of the services. How much do I look forward to the participation in them and of them and that which they make available? We see what was happening in Amos' day. You'll notice as you close that slide. In chapters 4 and 5, we learn otherwise that the place of Bethel was the place where their worship was conducted. And at that place, you find an interesting statement. A statement in Amos 6, verse 5. There are a number of woes, W-O-E, pronounced upon them for various choices and decisions and selections. Among other things, they were people who had become lazy. They had become people of ease. They liked a life of which everything was provided for them, and they weren't that interested in making sure that they themselves worked on behalf of the accomplishment of those things. But yet in the midst of all of that, verse 5 says this, Woe to them that chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. As one gives thought in the biblical record, what instruments did David invent? What kind of instruments does the Bible uniquely associate with him? More than once in the Chronicles, it is identified that those instruments of music 
of David were those employed in the worship of the, of the ancient temple and tabernacle. And so it is, it would appear, that Amos brings that to their attention. Those who choose to follow that same matter are those who fall under the same line of consideration. And isn't it true that you and I today would still think with seriousness, should you and I invent to ourselves instruments of music for the worship like David? We understand easily again in the Chronicles what sentence was placed upon those kind of choices. And in the New Testament, God's law concerning that music has been fully specified. As thankful as we are for it, we dare not err from it. In chapters 4 and 5, as well as 6, as those matters were highlighted, only a few more, and then we're ready to somewhat close our brief consideration of Amos. One of the things that is so directly presented to the people of that day their life fell far short, again, of the kind of wholesome godliness which God expected. And yet they'd show up at these services at Bethel under the illusion that all was well. God pointed out through Amos, you can't afflict the poor and the needy all week long and then show up on the Sabbath and suppose that somehow God will ignore all those other behaviors of the week. In essence... If we may put it in our own words, he said, in order to serve the Lord and worship Him in truth, your life must be a life of godliness. You have to practice what you preach. Is it that still a vital lesson for one and all today? Didn't Paul assert to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity, in verity? And so as those marching orders are given to you and me, they still assert to us a requirement that we can't live like the devil all week and then show up on Sunday and suppose that suddenly our worship will be pleasing. Amos, in fact, shouted those messages long ago. One last thing on this slide. I invited you to notice in chapter 5, verse 14, let's look at the other side of that coin. In the midst of that chapter, these interesting words are found. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good. And establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. You and I hear God making the very simple statement, Love what's good. Hate what's evil. Order your life to follow that which is good. As simple as that advice may sound, how direct and how full of significance. And so it is as we come to one last observation. In the last couple of chapters, God showed Amos several things. You and I will be somewhat brief as we make note of what it was that God showed Amos, but the messages were dramatic, and the meaning was clear. And by the same token, the intent for you and me is also interestingly to be seen. As I point out to you these things that God showed Amos, we start in the opening part of chapter number 7. In the first six verses, what we notice here is God showed Amos something. And it's going to sound somewhat familiar, at least based on our study of Joel 
last Sunday evening. Do you recall a plague of locusts as a primary reference in that book? And yet in the opening six verses of Amos chapter 7, the verse says, God showed unto me, that's Amos, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Why did God show Amos a bunch of grasshoppers? Why did He show him something that would be that kind of a creature? The verses that follow pointed out pretty clear. It's another reminder of the judgment that God was shortly to bring upon His people due to their failure and their lack of direct service and obedience to God. These grasshoppers devoured, consumed, and ruined that which, of course, they came into. God says, my people are going to find themselves in a sore predicament. They too will be devoured and ruined. The grasshoppers put that message before them. Look at what followed it. God showed Amos something else. Verse number 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. God showed Amos a plumb line. You and I know from the world of carpentry what a plumb line is used for. It's to orient verticality, straightness, and directness. God's people were not upright anymore. They were crooked. They were leaning to the left or the right, and that won't do. The one who would serve the God of heaven must be upright as a plumb line would indicate in that plumb line. As you and I notice in those verses is connected to that which God revealed. And so it took us right back to His Word. That's what would make them vertical by virtue of the plumb line. That's not all. God showed Amos something else. I ask you to notice it on that slide. Turn over to chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. I suppose that a basket of summer fruit might sound... Rather positive. Have you ever enjoyed a luscious number of blueberries or strawberries or mango or some other kind of summer fruit? Maybe we each have and have found that rather delicate and very much enjoyable. What then did God mean to say, here's a basket of summer fruit? You and I readily learn that God didn't mean this in a positive way for the people, for His people. Think of one other thing about a summer fruit. If you leave some strawberries or, again, other fruits out in the sun for very long, they soon will rot. They soon will stink. They soon will become unpalatable and unuseful for anything but to be thrown out. God says, that's my people. They've become useless and good for nothing. Isn't that a powerful lesson? Isn't that a reminder of what His people had become? Isn't it also a reminder another element in tenderness to ensure we never become lazy or useless or fall aside from the verticality of the plumb line of the Word of God. One last thing, and the lesson will be yours. Something else in this chapter, it was the lesson text read earlier tonight. Verse 11, we read in the book of Amos about the worst kind of famine that's possible. Again, that verse read as follows. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And there's the worst famine of all, isn't it? As bad as a famine of food can be, and as terrible as a famine of water could be, where one has a lack of it, there isn't nearly enough of it. God says there's going to be a famine of the Word of God. Those people, again, in a very few years, were going to go into a place where they would no longer have access to any place wherein the worship of God could take place, wherein the other features connected to vital service of the Lord would occur, and the prophets would not be there. These people would then be bereft and without the greatness of the Word of God. And that's the worst famine of all. You and I know well today what happens in a place wherein the Word of God, though it may be present, it's not given any service, it's not given any interest. Didn't the book of Judges remind us that when every man does that which is right in his own eyes, what kind of desperate place does that place become? When they turn their back upon the God of heaven, and they were urged in Amos 4 verse 12, prepare for judgment. That judgment was soon going to come. This book closes in the ninth chapter, the closing chapter, with an interesting reference in verse 11 to what will be fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. The church of which you and I are a part. Amos foretold it over 800 years prior to its occurrence. I know that that's the truth because in Acts chapter 15, this passage is quoted and it is applied to the church. I suppose as you and I would read that apart from that Acts 15 text, we would have no idea what that text means. But, at least at this point, not only do we understand it, but we thrill in the thought of what it conveys. Aren't you thankful to be a Christian? That, that inclusion of the Gentiles in correspondence to the Jews into one body in the church that has now taken place. As we close the book of Amos, it only whets our appetite likely for some of these remaining prophets that will follow. But could I just summarize incredibly briefly that tonight at least, we have noticed God's judgment upon the nations, chapters 1 and 2. We highlighted His special notice of judgment and doom upon Israel due to her disobedience and sinfulness. That included her worship and included her inhumanity. Finally, in these things that God showed Amos. How interesting it is to think about the plumb line and her failure in light of what the plumb line would demand. Today, may you and I strive to walk by the plumb line of the Word of God, the features described in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. This very night, if we could be of service or assistance in some way to help you draw nigh unto the Lord, we'd be so happy We'd be so joyous to assist if we could be of help at this time. This song of encouragement has been selected. It is a time that's convenient. It's a time that reminds us about messages like Amos when he would urge the people. And they certainly were not very willing to change. May you and I think more honestly and openly and more wisely than that. If you and I need to change tonight... The Bible calls that repentance. If you and I need to do that, may we not delay. Tomorrow may be too late. Today's the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And we're going to stand in a moment and sing this song, issuing the Lord's invitation. 
urging you, just as Amos would have, to respond to that which God has set forth. And if we could be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?